I promise you, I didn't have to call unclean, though, when I came in the door. I've, I'm, I'm cleansed, man. The Lord, Lord has healed me. We're, we're 10 days at least past all of that mess. So anyway, but yeah, last week we, we, had, to, we had to do church at home, and that's just, not, that's just not the way it's supposed to be, right? I mean, it's good. I love being able to plug in. I'm sure a lot of our folks that are out today, probably our, our whole pastoral staff are checking us out online and worshiping with us as, as, as uh, close as they can. But there's just something about coming together and worshiping and feeling the presence of the Lord in the room in, in community. That's the way God designed it, right? That's the way he designed it, is that we encourage each other, we lift each other up, we pray for one another, we lay hands on one another, and we just enter in together. And so... I love, I love, love, love what God is doing at Lakeview, and I love the body of Christ here. I love that I get to be a part of it with you. So um, next weekend is something special. I, I, I appreciated, uh, um, I've appreciated the support of this church and the ministry of Compact over the last several years. Those of you that aren't familiar with Compact, Compact is your Assemblies of God faith-based child welfare organization. We cover a lot of ground in our ministry, and if you'll, give me, if you'll give me the liberty to just give a short little commercial before we get into the Word together, uh, I want to share with you something exciting that's coming up. But Compact covers a lot of ground when it comes to serving vulnerable children in the foster care system. We, of course, have our Hillcrest Children's Home that you, you all are familiar with. Many of you in the room have probably been there, served, volunteered. Some of you have even worked there at some point over the years. And the, the Children's Home is a beautiful, beautiful expression of God's grace in the lives of vulnerable children. But in addition to the Children's Home, we also have our foster care ministry. And that's what I'm responsible for. I'm the director of foster care for Compact. I work in the community with families uh, with churches that have a heart for foster care, teaching them how to raise up and support families in their church to get involved in that ministry. But I also work uh, directly with those families, and we, we work to place children in Christian homes uh, during their difficult time in the foster care system. And so I'm, I'm very excited about that. But there are certain dates on the calendar that we make special effort to connect with churches in the community and raise awareness. Next Sunday is actually one of those dates. Um, I'll, I'll be plugged in at another church, challenging that church to get involved in foster care, but also we have about two dozen churches here locally that will be partnering with us to raise awareness next weekend. So what's so special about next weekend? Next weekend is what is known in the church world as the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It is the Sunday that falls closest to the anniversary of the landmark uh, Supreme Court ruling known as Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade in January of uh, 1973, uh, 49 years ago next week, was handed down effectively legalizing abortion in all 50 states. Now, for those of us um, who hold a biblical view of the value of life, that is um, one of the greatest blights on our culture We've got a couple of things in, our, in the history of our nation that are really deeply embarrassing when we think about um, things that we involved ourselves in. The blight of slavery is one of those. The blight of abortion, I believe history will show that, that we're on the wrong side of that issue. 
legally and socially, we're on the wrong side of that issue. And so um, since 1973, over 64 million babies have been aborted uh, through the, uh, th uh, as a result of that tragic um, misstep in our justice system. It's a significant number. 63, 64 million babies. That's a significant number when you think about it. If they were alive today, all those babies were alive today, it would completely change the face of our nation. We would have 20% more people in our, in our population. And think about that. Like one out of every five people that would be alive today isn't, at least, not knowing the birth rate of those, those uh, children had they been born and lived. For the Christian, it's always been a very perplexing issue because as believers, we tend to start with the presupposition that God alone grants life and death and that fetuses are living, living beings that deserve to be protected. See, in our, in our, in, 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 when it comes to government, the single most important function of government is to protect the most vulnerable, period. And the, what could be more vulnerable than our children? And so it's a non-starter for believers to enter into public debate about this. For those of us that espouse the biblical view of the sanctity of life, it's a non-starter. We're not even interested in having that debate. But I've been thinking about this lately. What is it going to take to fix the blight of abortion on our culture? We hear rumors every once in a while that, well, you know, if, a, if the Supreme Court makeup is changed, then maybe that, that will change and... And, man, if we can just get the right politicians in office, then maybe that will change. And, you know, if we can pass the right kind of laws. But I've come to, I've come to wrap my mind around a hard and difficult truth. And that is we're not going to solve that crisis at the ballot box. Women don't get abortions because they're legal. They get abortions because there's, there, there's no support in their family. There's, there's no desire to keep that child. There's, there are any number of reasons. They're unable. They're unwilling. But it's not because they're legal. It's, it has nothing to do with the Supreme Court. It's, it's a blight on our cultural fabric that needs to be addressed in the heart of man first. You might have seen a few weeks ago on the news, there was a there was a very jarring story out of New Mexico. Uh, it made national news, and I'd be surprised if any of you missed it, but it was about an 18-year-old girl that didn't realize she was pregnant. And then she finally had a baby. Uh, she realized just shortly before she gave birth that she was pregnant, and she had the baby in her parents' bathroom and didn't know what to do, was unwilling to care for the baby, was panicked, so she wrapped the baby immediately after it was born. She wrapped the baby in a towel, put it in a black trash bag, and drove to a nearby dumpster behind a building and threw the baby away. Later that evening, about six hours after she placed the baby in the dumpster, there were two men that were dumpster diving looking for anything of value that they could sell. And they heard whimpering. They thought it was a dog or a cat. And when they pulled the bag out, the baby was miraculously still alive. Umbilical cord still attached and everything. And... They called the police, and the baby was taken into custody, and the baby is alive and well today. After, and there was it, it, temperatures in the 30s for six hours in that dumpster, and God preserved the life of that baby. So how would, how would that child's life have been different if abortion had been illegal? Abortion is not the root problem. 
That's not the root problem. The root problem is God, we're asking God to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. We're asking God to turn the hearts of parents back to their children and give them a heart to care for and to love the most vulnerable that's been entrusted to them. That's the issue. We're not going to solve it just by getting a different Supreme Court justice or changing the laws of the land. Obviously, I believe that laws should protect the vulnerable. I do. And I, and I pray that our laws will reflect that in time. But more important than that, I'm praying that God will move across this nation by His Spirit and He will turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. 85% of the time, when there's an abortion that takes place, there's no father anywhere in the picture. 85% of the time. So we're not going to solve the abortion crisis or any other crisis in this nation for that matter until men step up and be men. And they love their kids and they love their wives and they stay committed. That's how we solve this crisis. So here's something to think about. Um, foster care is part of the solution. That baby that was born and thrown in the dumpster in New Mexico now needs a foster home. Okay? So if we're all, if we're, if we're all simply pro-birth, then we can all high-five each other and say that mom didn't have an abortion. And we go on about our lives. But if we're truly pro-life, now there's a life that's laying there somewhere and needing someone to step up and care for it. And so my challenge for the church is that we go beyond being pro-birth. We've been pro-birth for a long time, masquerading as pro-life. But if we're really pro-life, that means that we care about one another in the room. We care about each other as image bearers of Christ. We care about the vulnerable. We care about the children. And we care about those that are in the foster care system that have nowhere to be right now. 210 children in Garland County right now that need a place to be. 210. Not all of them have as dramatic stories as that baby in the dumpster, but all of them have landed in families who are either unwilling or unable to take care of them safely, and they need some place to be. And we just don't have enough places for those kids to be. So pray with me about that, would you? Uh, that's, <clears throat> that's my brief commercial, but I want you to pray with me about that. Pray with me that God will raise up family missionaries. That's what we call, in, in my foster care program, that's what we call them. I don't even use the term foster families. I call them family missionaries because it's essentially a missionary on assignment that God has called into the world of the broken. So pray with me that God will call more into that world. Um, what, that's, that's where we're going to camp and talk about uh, the value of life this morning. With next week being sanctity of of Human Life Sunday, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how much God values and cherishes life. That's yours, that's mine, that's the life of that baby in the dumpster, that's the life of the children that I serve, but it's, it, it, it's it, each one of us as image bearers of God, I've been thinking a lot about how much He cherishes and values you and I, and what it's going to take for us to really get that in our spirits and understand the way that God views us and values us. So what exactly is the value of one human life? Scientists, uh, there was a scientist several years ago that took a look at, just for fun, he took a look at one person and he said, let's see if we can assign a numerical value of what this person is worth. Because inside of each one of us, there are certain minerals. Uh, we have nickel, we have water, we have, uh, we have calcium, we have, you know, all these organic, um, you know, uh, components of our lives, 
And he said, what if we were to distill a human body all the way down and figure out the value of that human body? And he was able to actually come up with a dollar figure for, for most people. Some of us have a little more volume than others, right? And so there, there, might, <laughs> there might be a little more value. But um, he was able to distill it down, and he came up with a number $4.66. On the open market, your body is worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $4.66. And about half of that is for your hide. So if they wanted to make leather out of you or whatever. So, Yeah. <laughs> $4, and some of you have a little more hide, too, so you might, that value might go up. So $4.66, that's, that's what you're worth on the open market. Now, some of you are like, no, oh, man, I've been to the plasma place down there. They, they, they pay me more than that twice a week, <laughs> or whatever it is, you can go to the plasma place. But that, let's, let's be honest, though. The enemy would love to tell you that you have no value that that $4.66 is actually a little overpriced for you. The enemy would love to tell you that you're marred and you're broken and you're, 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 you're not worth anything alive. You're not worth anything for your future. You're not worth anything to your family. You're permanently worthless. And if we're being totally honest about it, I think all of us have this innate ability to really foul things up in our lives, to really mess things up. To the point we have to look in the mirror and say, I don't know if there is any value left in this or not. Look at the story of the prodigal son. He's a perfect example. He started out with everything he could possibly want. And for reasons that seemed so important to him at the time, he squandered it all. Yeah. Took what he had and went to a far country. And the Bible says he lived like an absolute fool until he had nothing left. And he was looking up at the pigs and wishing that he could at least eat as well as the hogs were eating. He really, really fouled things up. And that's, that's kind of indicative of the way that you and I all are able to really foul things up in our lives. But our worth does not come from our performance. And it does not come from our circumstances. Our value comes directly from the image of the one who created us. The Bible describes us as being formed in the image of God. And there is nothing that you can do to efface or erase the image of God on your life. No matter how far you've traveled, that's the thing about the prodigal son. No matter how far he traveled, no matter how, foul, how, how bad he fouled up his life, he still looked like his daddy. He still bore the image of his father. And he was still the son no matter what his circumstances were, no matter how bad he'd messed things up. We are breathing God's air. We are breathing his breath. It's on loan to us. We are walking around in his image. And there is no amount of mistakes or failures or challenges in this life that we can devalue ourselves to the point that we're no longer his children. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities, I'm convinced that there's neither present nor future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation that would be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Nothing. I think about, I think about what David said in Psalms 139. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, for you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Somebody needs to look at your neighbor this morning and say, I'm all right. Because I'm his. Yes, you are all right because you are his this morning. And you bear his image. Where are you going to go to escape his presence? How far do you think you can travel this morning away from the presence of God? You can't outrun him. You can't go so far that his love won't find you. You can't finally cross a line where his mercy is out of reach. You're not that good. You're not that powerful. You're not that strong. It, I know we don't see it that way, but sometimes when I talk to people and they're like, I just, I've gone too far, I've gone too far, I'm too far outside the reach of the Lord. I think, you, do you really believe that you are that much greater than every other person that's ever lived before you that's been able to experience the grace of God? It's just arrogance. That is just arrogance and couched in humility to say that no, the, the reality is the reality is, if God's mercy is good enough for me, I promise you it's good enough for you. If, God mercy, if God's mercy and grace found me in my darkest place, I promise you He'll find you in your darkest place. I want to share a story with you this morning that I know many of you are familiar with. I'm pretty sure I've heard Pastor Matt at some point or another teach on this topic, on this, on this individual. But I want to talk to you about, out of 2 Samuel chapter 9, a story in the Old Testament about a man by the name of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, and he was the son of David's closest friend, Jonathan. So if you've ever studied the life of David, you know how important Jonathan was in that relationship that they shared. They were very, very close brothers, very close brothers. It was complicated because Jonathan was the son of Saul, who was the king of Israel that had failed God that had, uh, that had displeased the Lord and had lost confident, the confidence of God. And God had said, we're going to dethrone Saul and we're going to put David in, in his place. And so that made things complicated because David and Jonathan, Saul's son, were best friends. But David and Saul, Jonathan's father, were mortal enemies. Well, at least that's the way Saul saw it. And so, when, let's talk about Mephibosheth for a second, the son of Jonathan. Okay, when you're, when you're the grandson of the king, that's a, pretty good, that's a pretty good way to start your life, right? Good things, good things. You live in the palace, you have all the provisions and resources of your grandfather the king. He's proud of you, he's promoting you. One day you can expect that you can be in an even better position in life. As things move forward, growing up with the privileges that others only dreamed of, promises that were pretty special, he was a prince, and that is, of course, until things went irreparably south. His grandfather, Saul, King Saul, was disgraceful and sinful, and God said, you're, you're no longer going to be king, we're going to remove 
the hand of blessing and the anointing off of your life, and we're going to replace you with David. Dad and grandfather, Saul and Jonathan, were both killed in battle at the same time. And the Bible describes a picture of Mephibosheth, grandson of King Saul, was just a young boy when all this happened of about five years old. He's like a first grader, kindergartner. Okay? And when news came to his nanny who was taking care of him that King Saul, the grandfather, and Jonathan, the father, had been killed in battle, the nanny, in fear for the child, snatched that baby up and took off running to escape in case the same thing might happen to the baby, trying to protect the child. But something tragic happened on the way as the nanny was running with the baby. She tripped and fell and somehow landed on the child in a way that left the child crippled for the rest of his life. Lame in his legs. Both feet were messed up so bad that he couldn't walk. Not just temporarily, but for the rest of his life. So whatever the boy's lot in life prior to his fifth birthday, now it has taken a drastic turn for the worse. He was in line for the throne. Now he's in exile. He was healthy. Now he's crippled. He lived in luxury, but now the Bible says he, he escaped to a God-forsaken wasteland known as Lodabar. And he lived there for the next several decades. Lodabar is, a, is a, a, a Hebrew word that means no pasture, nothing good. He was living in a place where there was nothing good. So how many of you can relate to this poor fella? Things have just not gone like they were supposed to. Maybe there was a time in your life that you thought that things were really coming together for you and that you, you held so much hope for the future and so much potential in your life. God knew where you were. God knew uh, what He wanted to do in your life and you just felt like you were just had the world by the tail. And then all these things just come apart at the seams, leaving you like... Mephibosheth, wondering what might have been if you had made different choices or if somebody else had made different choices. This is where he was. For decades he lived like that. The Bible tells a story about David later coming to power after Saul was dethroned and killed. David came to power as king. And we know David in, in history as being the greatest king of Israel that Israel ever had. And as David came to power, he had some housekeeping stuff he had to take care of. He, he took care of the, some of the key enemies of Israel. He established his city. He established his throne. And when he came to a place of peace in that transition of power, after several years, after he came to a place of peace, he was sitting there one day thinking to himself, he thought, you know, I remember making a promise to my good buddy Jonathan one day that I would bless him and that I would take good care of his family. And he said, I still miss that boy. I still miss Jonathan. Da David grieved for years over Jonathan. And he said, you know, I wonder if any of his family is still living somewhere that maybe I could bless today as a way of blessing Jonathan. And so he called a friend in that he knew had firsthand knowledge. And he called, he called Ziba in, who was a servant of Saul. And he says to him, he says, listen, I'm looking for a family member of, 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 of uh, Jonathan or of Saul. Somebody that I can bring in and bless. And Ziba said, yeah, well, there is one that I know of. His name is, is Mephibosheth. And he said, but before you get too excited about it, you need to know that he's lame and he's crippled. And he's, he's just, he's, he doesn't look very royal. 
for one. He probably wouldn't look very good in your, in your um, court, David. But David said, I'm, I don't want to hear it. Let, let me just read the passage for you here. In, in, uh, let me read the passage for you. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called to him, they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Micah, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent to, and brought him from the house of Micah, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of, your of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Okay. So David went looking for someone from the house of Saul that he could bless, and he found this one used to be a little boy, now he's a grown man, but this one cripple and invited him to his table. And he restored to him everything that Saul had in his lifetime. All the lands, all the cows, all, all the horses, all the possessions. He restored it all to him. And the scripture says he even assigned somebody to work the land. He's like, it's going to be your job to work the land and make sure that Mephibosheth always has food to eat. And he's always going to be invited to sit at the king's table. What a drastic turn in this young man's life. And I want to take just a few minutes, the few minutes we have left together this morning, and I want to talk about some of the things we learn about the way God values our lives, even when we don't realize it. And the way that God knows where we are, even when we think that he's forgotten us. So here are a couple of takeaways from the story of Mephibosheth. Number one, God has not lost track of where you are. God knows exactly where you are, even if you feel completely forgotten and overlooked by everyone else in the world. God knows where you are. Best we can tell from the story of Mephibosheth, something like 30 years had passed. 30 years from the time that he was trampled on, uh, in that, in that uh, hasty escape and he was left lame Something to the tune of 30 years had passed. So he's probably in his mid-30s now, Mephibosheth. And he had learned to live a new normal in his life. Far below the royalty that he was born into. Birthdays and holidays and milestones, they all happened in isolation for him. In exile, living in Lodabar. He learned to beg for his food. He was living a long way from the palace. But you know what? The whole time, God knew exactly where he was, and he was positioning things to restore to him the joy of living. God's plan for your life may seem to be dormant, but it's still there. It's still there. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't decide that what he's made is really junk and wash his hands of it. He still views you through the, through the lens of love and compassion because you are made in his image. 
You're a child of God. So what is God's plan for your life? What is it that God wants to accomplish in your life? Maybe that you've forgotten or pushed to the side or you've convinced yourself is not really for you. He wants you to be at peace, friends. He wants you to to have healthy, strong relationships with your family. He wants you to... He wants you to work through, he wants to work through you to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. He wants to use you in powerful ways. This is the the will of God for you today. Something else that I love about Mephibosheth, something that really encouraged me when I studied his story again, and that is this. We learn from from Mephibosheth. That's hard to say. Can we just call him a meth head? <laughs> we learn from the meth head. We learn from him that God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of us. My goodness, this is one of the most difficult things for us to wrap our minds around because we tend to view God through the lens of if we were God. If I was God, I would be ashamed of me. If I was God, I probably would have wiped me out a long time ago. If I was God, I would never want to see me again because I would know all the terrible things that I've done and thought and said. Mephibosheth, his name literally means out of the mouth of shame. Out of the mouth of shame. He was crippled. He was lame, unable to walk. He was dependent on others every single day to take care of him. He was also a picture for all who looked at him at what could have been, as, as what, of what could have been. When somebody looked at Mephibosheth and they knew his story, they knew that he was the grandson of the deposed and exiled and killed King Saul, they would have looked at him and thought, that'd be the first thing I would think if I ran into him. I'd be like, that's pitiful. That's pitiful. Look at all that potential that he had when he was born. And look where he is now. Look at what could have been in his life. And look what happened now. And there isn't anything anybody can do about it. He's crippled and he's exiled and he's a beggar. Shame. Shame. Mephibosheth would have lived his every day with so much shame crippling him. That would have been more crippling than the injury to his feet. His injuries would have also made it nearly impossible for him to find love and companionship. In his day, I mean, today you hear all kinds of great stories. I mean, they make Hallmark movies about crippled people or, or disabled people finding love or whatever. I th- <laughs> Lindsay and I watched a Netflix series called Love on the Spectrum about kids with, you know, young adults with like serious um, spectrum disorder, autism spectrum disorder that find love. And it's like this heartwarming story and all that. But rewind back to biblical times. If you were a crippled man, you couldn't provide for your family. You were not. You, you, why would you be chosen? There's nothing you could bring to the table. And so that would have also led to him being isolated and he would have never in his entire life experienced romantic love. He would have never experienced companionship and commitment from a spouse. His entire life was defined by shame. When Ziba was asked about Mephibosheth, that's what he led with. When David said, hey, is there anybody that I can show kindness to? He said, yeah, there is this one guy, but he's crippled. But... I don't think he's what you're looking for because he's got a real problem and it's shameful. 
But what I love is that David dismissed it totally. He said, yeah, well, he's crippled. And David said, well, where is he? Bring him here. He didn't say, how crippled is he? He didn't say, how bad is it? He didn't say, oh, well, I guess we can work with that. He just completely dismissed that. And he said, that is not what I asked. God is not ashamed to be seen with you. And I wish you could hear that today. I wish you could hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of all the things that you've done. I think the shame of our lives is often the most damning part of our stories. Keeps us right where the devil wants us. Isolated and alone. Adam and Eve felt the shame. Remember when they first discovered that they were naked, when they ate of the tree, the forbidden fruit of the tree. They hid from, them. They hid from the Lord. And when God said, where were you? You didn't do what you usually do when I come calling in the cool of the day. You didn't come running like innocent children to embrace me. Where were you? And they said, well, we can't do that anymore because we're ashamed. We're naked and ashamed. The prodigal son felt it on his way home. Shame. He's like, I know that I don't deserve to be in my father's presence. And if he just doesn't kill me, maybe I can get a job as a servant. The demoniac that scripture teaches about that lived in the tombs. Isolated from society because of his problems. The woman with the issue of blood felt it. She got desperate enough to press through the crowd when she knew she was supposed to be isolated. The woman who was caught in adultery felt that kind of shame too. Thrown into the middle of the court as everybody humiliated her and called for her death. Shame, shame, shame. Mephibosheth's name meant it, meant out of the mouth of shame. He lived a lifestyle of shame, things that had happened to him. But a lot of us experience shame because of things we've done ourselves. Sometimes it's because of what's happened to us or what somebody else has done. And that shame can be crippling. But what I love about the story of Mephibosheth is it underscores the truth that we find all through Scripture, and that is God is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed. He's not a, he knows your story. He knows your history. He knows your capacity for sin. He knows all the things you've ever done. And He doesn't look at you and say, man, I'm so ashamed that I made that person. What He sees is the image of God stamped on you. Also, something else we learned from Mephibosheth is there is no need to be afraid of God. Mephibosheth must have been terrified when he heard that David wanted to see him. You know why? Because in those days, when there was a new king, he annihilated the family of the old king. It's just job security. It's making sure you eliminate all the threats. You, you want to make sure there's no insurrections. So the old king that just got killed, you got to pull out all the seeds of his family from your ranks and make sure. We have a little bit of that that goes on politically in our culture today. It seems like I hear about that kind of stuff. New president, so they wipe out everybody from the old president, whatever. So it's, it's just making sure that you, you're, you're, you're covering your bases and covering your backside. So that's what I'm sure Mephibosheth thought was about to happen. When he heard rumor that David wanted to see him, he's shaking in his boots. And we know that because when he shows up in David's courts, David said, are you Mephibosheth? He bows himself to the ground and he says, no, I'm your servant. Whatever else you call me, I'm your servant. I'm here to serve you. And David immediately recognized it. And the first thing out of his mouth was, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me. I'm here to bless you. I'm here to bless you. I'm here to love you. I'm here to lift you out of your station. 
I'm here to put you right where you belong at my table. Don't be afraid. I think there's some of us in the room that have probably been hiding away from God because we have fear of Him. We have fear of whether He would really receive us. If we really approached God, would He reject us? Because I would reject me. What, what, will I feel more shame if I come into the presence of God? If God calls me and invites me to come to His table, won't I just feel more shame knowing that I don't belong there? Will it just be one more person that I can't live up to their standards? Maybe the fear that you have when, when you feel the tug of the Holy Spirit drawing you closer to the Lord and you're afraid to step into that, maybe the fear that you have is, what am I going to have to give up? What is my life going to look like? Am I going to be able to do it? What, what will I give up if I come into His presence? But all the while, I hear the Lord saying, don't be afraid. I'm here to bless you. I'm here to change your life. I'm here to give you a hope and a future. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. They're good. Plans to, to prosper you and not to harm you and to give you a hope and a future. He's seen you the whole time. God's seen you the whole time you were hiding. And He had the capacity to wipe you off the map then. And He didn't do it because of His patience and His mercy. He wants to draw you into His, 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 his courts and He wants to seat you at His table, and He wants to bless you today. There's room at His table for you. Mephibosheth had been begging and eating scraps his whole life. What a disempowering existence. Getting up every day completely at the mercy of somebody else. There was a better place to be. It was at the king's table, but he didn't know that he had a seat there. The king had that seat prepared for Mephibosheth. He simply needed to pull up and partake. The best part was that sharing a meal in Bible times was not about the menu. When you shared a meal with somebody, you were showing connection. You were showing community. You were showing acceptance of that person. That person was now family. They ate at your table. So Mephibosheth being invited to sit at the table, it was not about filling his belly. It was about filling his heart. And filling his life with meaningful, loving connections from the Father, from the King. And so today, we have a seat prepared for us at the King's table. When you eat at the King's table, there's certain confidence that comes with it. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. When you push away from the King's table and you hobble off all crippled, that was the thing about Mephibosheth, he didn't get healing from his legs. He still was crippled. But his life was completely transformed. He could care less whether he was crippled or not. He had all the benefits of being at the king's table. It didn't matter to him anymore. You walk away from the king's table. I don't care if you crippled, you ugly, you mistake prone, whatever. You're a failure. All that melts away. You're just like, you know where I just came from? I just ate at the king's table. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I really don't care about any of that other stuff. I've been accepted at the king's table. There is a place prepared for you and I today at the king's table. He hasn't forgotten you. He's not ashamed of you. He has welcomed you there. All you got to do is take a step. All you got to do is take a step. And here's, here's the thing. You, here's, here's what makes it all work. And I close with this this morning. Here's what makes it all work. When David explained all of this to Mephibosheth, he told him, he said, every bit of this 
is because of a promise that I made to Jonathan. He was good to me. I'm going to be good to you. So in other words, all of this was laid out there for Mephibosheth, and he didn't do anything to deserve it, but somebody else did something on his behalf. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? We are invited to the king's table, and the minute you start thinking, I've got to earn my way there, the minute you start thinking that I don't deserve to be there because of this, this, and this that I've done in my life, you are excluding your ticket to that table. The ticket to the table is Jesus. He's the one on your behalf that has paid the price. He did it all for you. And so now what happens is, Jesus went to the cross and bore all of our shame. He went to the cross and bore all of our failures and mistakes. It was crippling on Him. The weight of that was so, it was so heavy that He looked to the Father and said, Why are you forsaking me? Because He was feeling the weight of all of our sins and all of our failures. And now, after that sacrifice was accepted, the Bible says the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. Now you see the Father God stepping back and saying, Are there children of Jesus here that I can show kindness to? Are there joint heirs with Christ that I can show kindness to because of Him? Because of Him. The mercy of God is on its way to you because of what Jesus did on the cross, not because of what you have done in your own strength. <laughs> Mephibosheth, man, he received it. He received it, didn't do anything to deserve it. He didn't do anything to deserve it. His life was completely transformed because of the kindness of David shown on behalf of Jonathan. My life has been completely transformed because of the kindness of God shown on behalf of Jesus. When he looks at me, when he looks at me, he sees the image of his son Jesus. And it draws the kindness right out of him. I stand justified before God, not because of my works, not because I've been able to figure out the secret to winning God's favor by doing just all the right things. I stand justified before God because Jesus bore in my body the stripes that brought peace between me and God. <laughs> He's, he is my Redeemer today. He's my Savior. And He can be your Savior too. I'm going to believe with you this morning that God's love will find you where you are. He has not forgotten where you are. He is absolutely not ashamed of you. He has prepared a place at the table for you. And all you got to do is receive the offer of His grace through Jesus this morning. Can you stand with me this morning? I want to pray over you. Hmm. Father, I thank You for my friends that are here today. I thank You, Lord, for this beautiful body of believers that have gathered just to lift up the name of Jesus. God, I'm, I'm so thankful that each of us have been given the gift of the breath of life. You breathed into each one of our lungs and you've given us purpose and hope. I just want to speak right now against the lies of the enemy. There are those I know in this room that deal with those lies day in and day out. Feel like they're unworthy. Feel like they're irredeemable. Feel like they're too far from you. But I know, God, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've prepared a place for us at your table. Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we have an invitation to dine with the King. And I want to ask you right now, Lord, that you'd find us at our lowest point. That everyone in this room would experience, 
would experience your grace extended. I pray, Father, that you would speak louder and clearer, God, than any of the lies that we've told ourselves or that the enemy has told us that we're not worthy, that we're not deserving. God, that may have been true before Jesus, but he paid it all. He paid it all and he made us worthy. I love you, Lord. I honor you. I thank you for your people today. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. 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 Friends,